Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, the Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, we're joined by Robert Lee. He is a PhD student at uh, King's College London in the War Studies Department, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in the US. And he is the author of Moscow's Compelling Strategy, a new essay, or I suppose white paper at the FPRI, which is the reason I wanted to have him on. Uh, If you haven't followed Rob's work, He is one of the most insightful and detail-oriented observers of the Russian military situation, particularly uh, the buildup along Ukraine's borders, and has really done sort of yeoman's work in explaining kind of the gravity of this situation and why just based on sheer numbers and the architecture and manpower in place, an invasion of Ukraine, or I should say a reinvasion of Ukraine, is increasingly likely. Uh, Rob, it's great to have you on. I've I've wanted to talk to you about this for a long time. And and let me just put it to you broadly. I mean, you have been saying now for weeks and if not months that the the number of forces that Putin has moved, not just to one border, but now to essentially three, and the kind of uh, material that has been brought to bear in the situation suggests that it's all but impossible that there won't be another attack on Ukraine. Walk us through that. Sure. So basically what I argue is that you know, the, the current buildup is a continuation of the buildup Russia did in the spring, which occurred in March and April. And, and some of the units that they deployed then, including um, from the Central Military District, the, the 41st Combined Arms Army, which is based in Siberia, which was, you know, quite, quite a concerning development that happened in March and April, that most, almost none of that equipment went back after uh, the spring buildup. It, it remained there the entire time. It's been there, you know, for almost a year now. So, you know, obviously what, what's going on in the fall is a continuation of the spring. And basically my argument is that in the spring, Russia was trying to deter certain actions um, from Ukraine or from NATO, and, you know, particularly anti-Russian policies, but they were quite vague about exactly what they wanted. They didn't provide a deadline. You know, they built up forces, but there, there were certain kind of key components that weren't in place. They didn't, I don't think they, they didn't stockpile those ammunition, logistics, some other things. And so basically, um, they, they clearly tried to, to raise tensions. They wanted to conduct this demonstration. But I argue that was basically about deterrence. And, and the, the big kind of change that I think uh, when you look at the events that happened over the summer and the fall, that now the new buildup, they, they've switched from a strategy based on deterrence to compellence. And the difference basically is deterrence is saying, we don't want you to take a, a certain future action. We're trying to, uh, to demonstrate that we have the capability and credibility to do something that you would not like if you do this kind of future thing. Well, compellence is about changing behavior that is currently happening. And so it's something that Russia is seeing right now, they don't like, and they want to force a change to it. And they're forcing that with, with a threat of force and with uh, you know, threats of coercion. And so what we're seeing now that's you know, really concerning is that on, one, on the military side, a lot of what's happening is unprecedented. So the number of units that Russia's deployed, it's about 60 battalion task groups. That is about 33% of Russia's total um, number of battalion tactical groups they have. Mm-hmm. So it's about a third of Russia's ground combat power is right now near Ukraine. And when you, when you remember that Russia is the largest country in the world, I mean, massive country, huge borders, to concentrate all of that in a, a relatively small area, I mean, I, I mean, say relative to Russia, it, it's significant. And then it, they are, it looks like they're deploying more naval reinforcements, air, aviation reinforcements, a variety of kind of systems. And, and basically all of this kind of stuff, if Russia wanted to fight a high conventional war, this is the stuff they'd move, right? Because if they want to move as much combined arms system as possible, they're moving that kind of stuff. So on the military side, 
We're seeing a lot of concerning things. And, and some of the, the recent things, we've seen units from, I think, every military district moved to, near Ukraine. Yeah. And that's you know unique. And we're seeing right now, things from the eastern military district, including equipment that, that's based in Vladivostok, even not far from North Korea. We're seeing that stuff move to Belarus right now. Mm. So again, this, the distances here are just are enormous. It's extremely not routine. And when you consider that you've got most of a combined arms army from the Central Military District in Siberia, and now we're seeing lots of units coming from the Eastern Military District to near Ukraine, it really is a significant and kind of unprecedented element. And what really was concerning about this is that the military side is, is unique, is unprecedented, but also the, the behavior and rhetoric from Russian officials. And so we've seen, as c- compared to spring, when, when the, a lot of the kind of concerns and demands are a bit vague, this time, Russia has given the specific demands. They've given ultimatums. They've said, we have a, a tight deadline. And really, there's not much space in the negotiation. Basically, you need to make these concessions. There's no other starting point beyond you making concessions, or else a, there will be a military, military technical response. And so all of that is unique. To say there's a deadline, that committing to a response, they, they, they've boxed themselves into a corner if they don't escalate or receive concessions. And many of these, these demands, at least, at least regarding NATO, were you know pretty much unrealistic at the beginning. Yeah. You know, there's, there's really there was no chance that NATO was going to move any kind of equipment out of you know any member that wasn't a NATO member in 1997 because a, a number of countries joined after that. Right. So a lot of those are kind of non-starters. And so the behavior basically, it, it, the problem is that if Russian officials were to back down now without achieving something, there will be a cost of credibility. Right. And so when Russian officials look at what are the costs and benefits of escalating. Well, there's a cost to not escalating at this point. That's another issue that is part of it. And basically, from my, my view, when Putin decided to start a new buildup in the fall, probably decided that in October or so, I think that he accepted basically that depending on how events go, we may need to use military force. I think he, he accepted that back then. It's, it wasn't a decision he's making right now. It was depending on how events occur in the future, this might be an option we have to take. And I think he prepared himself for that back then. And that's why we've seen kind of themselves put themselves in this position where basically their credibility is online if they don't go through with it. Yeah, no, no, that, that's a great pricey. I want to ask you first, okay, so you've, you've outlined the, the size and, and scope and the kind of ominousness of, of the deployment. But there's a question about, okay, if, if there is an attack, what will it look like and how far will it go, right? I mean, you've made the case online uh, we're not necessarily talking about a full-scale invasion and occupation of Ukraine where, you know, soldiers and tanks march on Kiev and try to overthrow the government. It could be something more limited than that. Explain, given the capability that they have now and assuming they're, they, they're continuing to move personnel and kit, what they will have, say, in a week, two weeks, or another month's time. I think mid-February is when people say this has to be done if it's going to be done at all. What do you foresee here? What kind of operation is being prepped? Uh, is this going to be essentially destroying all of Ukraine's sovereignty, or is it going to be moving in, eliminate, or, or, or not even necessarily moving in across the line in the border? They could use standoff systems. They could use missiles. They could use their aircraft to destroy Ukraine's defense architecture, particularly in the east near Donbass. What do you envisage here? So first thing I mentioned before we get into military options mm-hmm. is basically what is the political goal? What is the problem that Russia has? Why are they doing this? Because ultimately, you know, I think a lot of people have dived into what would an occupation look like without identifying the political goals. Ultimately, the political goals are going to tell us how much force Russia needs to use and, and, and how they use military force. So my argument is that, you know, Russia made, has made a, a variety of demands to NATO. I'm arguing that the, the one really pressing issue is Ukraine and that basically the reason why their behavior has changed so much is, you know, a lot of stuff about NATO, a lot of it is impressing, right? A lot of this is things that have been around for a long time. It's, it's, it wouldn't justify their current actions. 
But what they've seen is that in Ukraine, they're hoping that Zelensky, when he came to office, that he'd be more amenable to negotiating a solution to the to the to the Minsk agreements or to the Donbas that would basically be you know be, be acceptable to Russia on Russia's terms. Well, you know what they've seen is basically they, they had a meeting in 2019, the Normandy format, and then they had they had some negotiations in 2020. None, none of those really paid off, and the meetings of 2020, you know, R- Russia thinks they kind of took a more con- con- um, conciliatory the gestures towards Kiev during this time. And basically, they're supposed to set up an advisory council in 2020. And there's there some wording in the document that I think implied that Ukraine was going to negotiate with the, the leaders of the the the, rebel, the the Russian-backed rebel groups, the LNR, DNR, which was unacceptable. And so basically, it's a huge pushback in domestic politics. And basically, it never went anywhere. So I think basically, Russia considers that there's no prospects for negotiations in Ukraine at this point. And even if Zelensky is replaced by someone else, Basically, you know, domestic politics in Ukraine is such at this point that there really isn't going to be anyone who can make the kind of concessions they want that would be politically um, survivable. And so basically, they once that kind of thing failed, they then hope that in a Normandy format that France and Germany would force Kiev to make concessions. That didn't happen. And so that's, that's why now they're really focusing on, on Washington, hoping that President Biden will come in and will basically try and force Kiev to make these concessions. That isn't happening. And so the last kind of resort is basically military force. And so I, I think their concern is that they're now looking at Ukraine as a semi-permanently hostile country. Right. And it's a country that is in- increasing its defensive capabilities. And they still have this, you know, outstanding concern over what's going on in Donbass. And obviously still have a, a large border with Ukraine. And so they, they basically look at it as, I think, as a security threat, among other issues. So they want to deal with it now. The big issue is, a, I think, they, they, when they look at Ukraine, they, they're concerned that if Ukraine increases defense capabilities more, especially by getting longer and longer range weapons, they'll have greater conventional deterrence and that any, if Russia needs to escalate in the future, force an issue in the future, it'll be more costly than doing so now. And so that's, I think, I think it's what's, what's driving it now. And so if you accept that, and you know, people can have, have disagree about what the exact put of goals are, but if you accept that, Russia wants to use force to either implement the misagreements to force Kiev to agree to that, or some other kind of worse version of the misagreements if, if Russia decides to. But somehow, change Ukraine's political orientation, right? May force them to be neutral, maybe force constitutional changes. I'm not sure. Or the last one is basically the greatest defensive capabilities. And that, that would be partially about degrading current capabilities and to try and make a demonstration saying, if any country deploys more we- new weapons to Ukraine in the future, we will use military force again to, to you know, stop the preempt it and to stop them from being delivered. So let's, let's take those piece by piece. I mean, if it's to force uh, Ukrainian concessions with respect to Minsk, that would suggest something more limited, perhaps occupying the DNR and LNR areas with the conventional Russian military forces, creating a kind of, you know, Abkhazia, South Ossetia scenario where this essentially becomes annexed Russian territory. If it's constitutional changes or changes in the way the government does business, that suggests something a little more integrated, if not a full-on assault on Kyiv, than you know, intelligence operations, cyber capabilities, influence campaigns. And, and then what was the third? Destroying their defensive infrastructure as what? Basically smashing factories and missile installations, um, aerodromes. I mean, what, 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 would, what would that look like? Walk us through like each one and what the, the con- concomitant military uh, operation would entail. I'm not sure... With regards to Donbass, I, th- I think it's more than that. So I think it's more than just trying to formalize its position. I think they, they basically want to force Kiev to reintegrate the Donbass, but but to basically give it, you know, so much autonomy and social status that it makes, you know, I, th- I think that would it would 
become an issue for sovereignty for Ukraine. But basically, I think some of those, those changes, and, and, I, and I don't know exactly what, you know, what kind of, you know, what way to, they would try and, you know, change Kiev's political orientation. Maybe that includes regime change. I, I, you know, I don't know. We can speculate. The issue is, I think almost all those options require a substantial amount of military force. Some people mentioned, you know, occupying terrain. My view is that we've heard these ideas about occupying different areas, like maybe the land bridge scenario, or maybe, you know, occupying terrain to open up the Crimean Canal, or a variety of those scenarios. And I guess my response is that you know, if the land bridge Russia has a bridge now between Crimea and the, and the rest of Russia. The land bridge, I don't, I don't know if that really solves any problem for them. And of course, they could have occupied more terrain in the last seven years. They, they just decided they didn't need to. And I, and I don't think they wanted to. In reality, I, you know, I don't think they're, they're happy kind of with the, 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 the current position with the Donbass. I think they want you know, changes to it because you know, obviously it costs them money and it's not an ideal kind of long-term solution. So I think what they basically want to do is they want to force change on Kyiv to solve these issues and they want to go kind of directly to source to solve those issues as opposed to, you know, occupy more of the Donbass or other areas. When we look at the military options, because I think it's about compellence, the, the, the military objectives are basically to inflict so much pain on, on Ukraine that you change their cost benefit analysis. So the idea of implementing Minsk agreements is politically unpalatable for, you know, Zelensky, probably any Ukrainian leader, they probably politically would not last if they tried to do that. Well, the only way you change the kind of cost-benefit analysis of that is you use military force, you do something so painful that basically, you know, from Zelensky's perspective, it says, okay, you know what, implementing these agreements is preferable to what, then, then, you know, sustaining more punishment from the Russian military. And so that could look like, you know, in the ways that you inflict punishment, it could be destroying Ukrainian units, um, inflicting casualties, taking POWs, destroying equipment, destroying their uh, future ability to, to defend, also just, you know, kind of demonstration of, of Russian power and what they can do in the future. All of those are ways you increase, you, you inflict pain on Ukraine to maybe change their cost-benefit analysis. The problem is that I think Russia want, has more ambitious political goals. Uh, and so the more ambitious the political goal in Ukraine, the more force they have to use because it's going to be more unpalatable for Ukrainian officials to kind of make that concession. If they are most fearful of a short to midterm, or actually, I think even long-term hostile state on their border and a state that has deep, deep historical cultural ties with Russia, how do they accomplish their strategic objective by going to war with a country that has already, I mean, the last seven years, and I've been to Ukraine at least six or seven times since 2014, I mean, the sense of nationhood, peoplehood that has uh, cohered among the Ukrainians has been palpable. Right. I mean, this as much as Russia is no longer what it was seven or eight years ago, Ukraine is no longer what it was seven or eight years ago. And the hostility toward the Kremlin is at an all time high. How does Putin achieve that sort of political and frankly, I mean, cultural reorientation for Ukraine without regime change and then even actually beyond regime change, long term occupation? I mean, explain that scenario as as he would envisage it. Sure. So. The, the difficult thing about this is that we're trying to put ourselves in the head of Putin and think, OK, from Putin's perspective, how much pain does he need to inflict on Ukraine so that Zelensky would then make the concessions to the things that he wants? And so it's, it's we're trying to put ourselves in the heads of you know, multiple people here, which which makes it tough. And of course, you know, Putin has been in office as prime minister president for what, 22 years now. Possibly he lives in a bubble and, you know, may not, you know, may exaggerate. The, the, you know, how easy or, or maybe difficult an operation in Ukraine would be, it's, it's hard to kind of know that. I think the idea is basically 
you know, the, the, they've been trying to implement this agreements. They've been trying to, to make these changes to, to develop a long-term uh, political solution to the Donbass. Ideally one that doesn't, you know, keep, I, I don't think they want Donbass part of Russia. I, I, I think they want to keep part of Ukraine because ultimately if the Donbass is a, is a voting block in Ukraine right. that changes Ukraine's political orientation. Because when, when, when Russia removed Crimea and the Donbass, they removed three voting areas that, you know, traditionally vote for more for candidates that are more kind of pro-Russian than not. You know, if you remove Texas from the U.S., you're going to get a more liberal country. Right. Remove California from the U.S., you're going to get a more conservative country. I think the same thing happened in Ukraine. And so I think ultimately they probably want the Donbass to be back. They want Donbass, Donbass to be able to vote in presidential elections, but they want, you know, a sort of status for it and more autonomy. So, again, I, I think he said that you, they were trying to inflict enough pain on Ukraine that they make they force them to make concessions. And then also, you know, once if they decide to escalate again, right, any future threats uh, in the future will be more credible because they've just escalated. And they say, OK, what I think they might do is this kind of punitive raid scenario where they might conduct the incursion for maybe a week or two. It would be, again, this is designed to destroy Ukrainian units and foot casualties, take POWs, um, destroy equipment. And then after a week or two, they may conduct a plan withdrawal. Right. So it might it might be kind of like a more aggressive version of what happened in 2008 where Russian forces moved beyond Abkhazia and South Ossetia, they conducted some punitive strikes, they, you know, they destroyed some um, Georgian uh, ships in, in the port of Poti, and they pulled back. Right. Except this time, they have more aggressive uh, ambitions. I think they might do something along, along those lines instead, because that might be enough to, to change Kiev's kind of cost-benefit analysis. Also, again, you know, if, they, if they take POWs and they take them back to Russia, they've got, they still have leverage over Ukraine. Right. And two... You know, if they are able to to smash a lot of the Ukrainian military, the threat might be such that okay, you, you guys can't defend against us if we do it again. We're making this threat again. The credibility of the threat is greater because we've already used force, right? We've already gotten the cost from from you know or sanctions, what have you. And basically, we're willing to keep doing this until you acknowledge that basically you're trying to achieve something you can't achieve, and we're willing to use military force force through our kind of uh, our objectives. So, and that might require Russian forces near the border for you know foreseeable future. So I think that's that's a possibility. Another option of, of that is that Russian forces might do the same kind of thing, more, more same objectives, but they might end up outside Kiev and they might say, OK, we, we're not leaving until you force through these changes. And we're going to keep force here as long as we need to for you know, the time being until you do those things or else we, you know, we threat, we'll threaten things in Kiev. Let's take that scenario as a, a sort of maximal the, the kind of invasion that Biden had alluded to in his press conference yesterday. Well, the Western response here seems to get a vote. And I want to you know, query your opinion on how much of one. I mean, if we're talking about U.S.-led with EU riding sidecar, U.S.-led full blocking sanctions on Russia's energy and banking sector, kicking Russia out of the SWIFT financial system, uh, going after oligarchs who, you know, people like Alexei Navalny and his anti-corruption foundation have advocated need to be targeted, essentially drying up a lot of Russian money parked in the West and therefore, I guess, countermanding a lot of Russian influence peddling in the West, which seems to matter a lot to Putin, including, by the way, Nord Stream 2, which the Russians have invested enormous financial and diplomatic capital into. How does that change Putin's cost-benefit analysis of what he's just done? Or does it not at all? I'm not an expert on sanctions. The one thing I'll say is, you know, we, we've had sanctions in place since 2014. The, the Russian economy has adapted. It, obviously, they had pain. They've adapted to it. You know, they, they, they currently are sitting at all-time high foreign currency reserves. I don't think that's a coincidence. When we look at where Russia intervened in 2014 and 2015 in both Ukraine and Syria, the Russian economy is in a far worse position. 
right there, you know, far worse position. The oil prices just dropped precipitously. Uh, mm-hmm. Oil prices back to a, I think it's the highest has been the Brent, the Brent price. I think the highest has been in, in years. Obviously, we, we know the demand in Europe for gas is very high right now. So ultimately, it, you know, this is probably a pretty good time for them to force this issue because it's not clear that you know the U.S. EU everyone will have as much of a united response and economic sanctions as they would otherwise. Um, and also, you know, I think they're taking steps to make their economy a bit more, less vulnerable to sanctions in the future as well. The ultimate risk is that by doing that, we, we risk pushing Russia and China together even more, kind of integrating their economies to a greater extent. I know that President Biden got a lot of flack for what he said the other day about distinguishing between response about a you know, small incursion or big incursion, but ultimately I'm sure that's true. Oh, no, there's no question that that's the policy debate that's being had. Uh, you know, it's just he said the, the quiet part out loud, as, as the kids on Twitter say. So, look, the, the picture you're painting, Rob, is one that heads I win, tails you lose. Like, it doesn't sound like Putin can be either deterred or dissuaded or, you know, th- th- that he's going to ultimately get a version of what he wants, no matter what. Maybe not with respect to, you know, NATO changing its protocols for member accession, but certainly with respect to what Ukraine is prepared to do and what it can only feasibly do at this point. Or am I wrong? Have I read your your conclusions incorrectly? No, I think you're right. There aren't easy off ramps right now, right? Because because Russian demands, you know, I, again, I, I think the main issue for Russia is Ukraine, and it's not just you know all the issues with NATO. It's it's about Ukraine. They think is now hostile. They want to either limit any kind of defense cooperation or, or, or its ability to kind of um, increase its defensive capabilities or and or, you know, force a change on its political orientation and make it neutral. The, NATO can't really make that concession. And the U.S. can make a concession because either even if the U.S. says, OK, we're not going to provide long range weapons. Well, Ukraine is de- de- developing longer range missiles themselves domestically. So it's, it's not even up to NATO. And, u- and ultimately, it comes down to a bit of a question of do we as U.S., force Ukraine to, you know, make significant domestic concessions, right? And that, that would include, I think, the U.S. trying to coerce Ukraine, or don't we? And, and ultimately, there's, you know, it's, it, the, the issue of trying to coerce a democracy, you know, at gunpoint is is obviously fraught with lots of issues. And, and it's, it's, Well, but except that that's exactly what Russia is doing itself right now. Right. That's what Russia wants. And, you know, the, the issue is that, you know, since before, when we look where they have the spring buildup, and we look at it after the spring buildup, a bunch of events happened that really angered Russia. And, you know, what, there are attempts at, at deterring kind of future defense cooperation between Russia and sorry, between Ukraine and, and NATO. That didn't happen. Right. There was a lot of cooperation over the summer. And there are a lot of indications that um, that NATO could continue to support Ukraine. Ukraine, the domestic policies were things that, they, that Russia really didn't like. So whether that was. You know, Ukraine going after Medvedchuk, Putin's you know, good friends, TV strike in the Donbass, right, really kind of publicly a swipe at kind of Russia, especially by publishing the video, the HMS Defender incident, and then all the arms sales, right? And the UK has increased its arms sales. Turkey continues to deliver TB2, UCAVs, and the US you know, I, I signed off a number of uh, increases in, in, um, in, in arms, arms deliveries. So all of those things, right, I think Russia said, okay, we tried to deter you in the, in the spring didn't happen. Now, you know, we, we're forcing this issue again. And this time we're really serious. And if you don't basically concede, right, and there's not really much room to negotiate, if you don't concede these issues, then we're going to risk a military response. And yeah, as you said, I don't think there are any obvious off ramps. I don't think the U.S. can simply, you know, it, it isn't simply about saying, okay, even if the U.S. said that, we, that NATO, Ukraine's not going to join NATO, I don't think that solves the issue. I don't think a lot of those concessions Russia's asked for really solve the issue 
and that they would significantly reduce the risk of a conflict in Ukraine right now because they think that the cost of inaction are greater than the cost of current action. Let's take it from another angle then. Like, okay, you painted a, a scenario where if Putin is, does not get what he wants with his initial limited incursion, possibly there's not a march on Kiev, but guns pointed at Kiev. Literally, you know, either your brains or your signature will be on the contract, kind of godfather rules. That is a, a, a long-term or, well, I guess a, a midterm deployment, assuming Ukraine doesn't buckle right away. I mean, again, are we underestimating Ukrainian resolve and the cohesion of, of the state or not the state, I should say, the society? You know, because you've said, suggested that those arguing, well, the U.S. should prepare Ukrainians for partisan guerrilla warfare, which it seems like the CIA is already doing, according to press reports. That's not going to have much of an effect if the kind of campaign we're talking about doesn't result in Russian boots on the ground for a while. But if, if Russian boots are on the ground for a while and Russian soldiers are being sent back in zinc coffins to Moscow without the uh, plausible deniability of there having been little green men or pop-up garrisons in Donbass and Crimea, does that not also affect Russia's calculation? Yeah, it certainly does. Right. So, so I think there, there are a ton of considerations they have. I think when you look at popular approval ratings or the views, the recent Levada Center poll about how, how Russians view the, the issue in Ukraine, they, they blame NATO and, and very few of them blame Russia for the issue. You know, I, when I look at popular approval ratings for, for Putin guarding escalation, I think it, it isn't too much of a restraint as long as the Russian forces target Ukrainian forces. The, the big restraint is... I think that if Russian forces started killing civilians or destroying, you know, cities, especially, you know, these, these really famous cities that had a big role in Russian history, I think that would be a big problem. And I think that's a limitation for them. So everything we're talking about is fraught with, fraught with you know, uncertainty and problems, right? And again, all, all wars are, are inherently unpredictable. There's no way you can say exactly how things would go. I, you know, the reason I think a raid is more likely is that Russia would have a, a, a greater ability to limit some of those risks, right? The risk of insurgency, risk of civilian casualties, so on, because they don't—they wouldn't necessarily go in the cities that much. If you go to Kiev and you go outside of Kiev, you still have to go near Ukrainian cities. The longer you stay there, the risk becoming you know greater. Of course, you know if they go outside Kiev, even if they destroy you know they they destroy number of Ukrainian units and inflict a lot of casualties, if if Ukrainians you know decide we're, we're still not going to relent. You know, it, it becomes a big issue for them, right? It becomes a call of their bluff and say, okay, what are you going to do about this? It wouldn't, Russia wouldn't have great options because they don't think they want to go into Kiev. And I don't think they go to the cities in general. And, and there's also the issue of, you know, once a conflict starts, the objectives can change. I think they can become more ambitious or be less ambitious depending on how things go. I, I really think that when we look at 2014 um, with, with Russia, I think after the Crimea operation worked out well for Russia, I think they said, okay, what, what, you know, what, why don't we pursue more ambitious goals by trying to prevent, you know, this, the, the new Ukrainian government from forming and let's stabilize the rest of Ukraine and, and really be able to force, you know, one of someone we want back in power. And that failed, right? And I think the current situation of Donbass as a result of Russia, you know, wanted to achieve more than they could and they failed to do so. And now we have this long-term issue, uh, which is a long-term issue to Russia as well, and one that they created. But you, you, you yourself have pointed out, look, you know, what may have started as a kind of hybrid war model of, you know, getting gangsters and former GRU officers or Spetsnaz or whatever criminal elements into the what became the DNR and LNR. That failed because Ukraine was retaking territory. So it became a conventional Russian military response to kind of create the not so frozen conflict we see today. But that's an example, though, of, of a Russian kinetic operation not achieving the strategic objectives in the long term, right? So it's not like we're saying Putin's batting a thousand here whenever he deploys his army. 
Agreed. Well, I think when you look at rush use of force, Georgia 2008 was very successful. Yeah. You know, arguably the most important thing it did is it demonstrated all the equipment and, and organizational problems Russian military had. And they, they enacted a really, you know, significant state arms program and they put a lot of money into that. And that's, you know, that par- partially reason why the Russian military is as capable as it is today and why it was capable of doing what it did in 2014. 2014, Crimea very successful. Donbass, not as successful. And then Syria, I think, has been quite successful for them as well. So basically, you know, I think Putin's been largely successful using force. But yeah, in the Donbass, they didn't achieve the, the, the goals they wanted, I think. And, you know, I think you look back at it as a counterfactual. If Russia took Crimea, but did nothing else in, in Ukraine beyond Crimea, you know, I think there's, a, there's an open question about how strong would have Western sanctions been, right? And what, what would the situation be right now? Because the Donbass will still be voting for people in the president's elections. And, you know, you, you may not be getting the most hawkish leaders in Ukraine uh, compared to Russia. I think that's a, you know, Russian use of force has been quite smart, typically. I think they use, they use force quite well. But when you look at the grand strategy, I think that was a strategic blunder from Russia. And I think the situation, you know, they, they would not be facing this problem that they're facing now if they had, you know, gone with that kind of lower end um, course of action. Again, that's that's something that we have to you know think about as well. Is that Putin might have a poor understanding of of, of what's going on in Ukraine. He may exaggerate to the extent to which Ukrainians may sit back with Russia invades or or you know wouldn't resist. It's hard to know because we're trying to assess you know multiple people and trying to assess his assessment of the situation in Ukraine, which you know is, is always fraught with kind of difficulties. So it's really hard to tell. But we know I think we look at behavior, right? Russia has, has significant amount of military forces. That means they can conduct a variety of military operations, right? That could be punitive raids. They could, it could be an occupation they wanted to. Uh, I just think it's less likely because I think the risks and costs become greater if you conduct an occupation. And if you do an occupation, does that really solve Russia's ultimate issue, right? And I'm not sure it does. Right. And so, I mean, I mean, they, they could try and annex everything east of the Dnieper. Does that solve their situation? I don't know. I think it becomes more of a problem. Right, and a huge cost to do that. So that's why I think these other options are, are better because I think they make more sense. There are more tailored use of military force to achieve objectives, and they come with, with less kind of downside risk and costs, and they mitigate some of the obvious responses Ukraine could have to try and make this a, a more costly intervention for Russia. One other component that I, have, I haven't seen, you know, really delved into, at least in the Western press, but uh, talking to Russian journalists and, and Western journalists who have been to Moscow recently, uh, it needs to be taken into account. And that is typically when Russia is preparing to go to war, it likes to prep its population for a war. And there doesn't really seem to be much of that happening. Even state employed journalists are talking like, we just, we aren't getting marching orders here. There's there's no sort of psychological domestic operation at play. I mean, what do you make of that? That seems, unless I'm wrong here, that seems to speak to your kind of more limited um, raid scenario than something more full bore and, and long term, which, of course, you know, you're going to have to account to the Russian people, even in an authoritarian regime. It's just it seems to be kind of a, a, an oddity in, in the data points um, suggesting an attack. Yeah. So I, I've seen some people say that they think that, you know, the the, the PR offensive is, is not what they expect. Yeah. And it's a bit surprising because, you know, recently, you know, Sergei Narishkin recently compared transactions to the, you know, the Nazis. Maria Zakharova did the same thing, right? Compared Ukraine actions in Donbass to the Nazi occupation in Ukraine. And the rhetoric has been very strong. Yeah, obviously, look at what Putin Putin wrote in July. Look at uh, a bit of what he wrote in October, where he called Ukrainian officials vassals. 
a lot of the the rhetoric this year, right? Maybe not just the the last month, but you look over the year, it's been a, a steady increase in threats saying, you know, the Ukrainian state could collapse if you do certain things. You know, talking to Ukrainian officials as though they're not equals, denying kind of Ukraine sovereignty agency, a variety of things, and also just. One of the key ones has been trying to act as though Ukraine, the Ukrainian leaders are puppets of the West. That basically, everything that's going on is basically what you know NATO is telling them to do, and that's it. That's been going on for the whole year. And so, again, you know, when you look at the Levada polls, it appears most Russians support that kind of view of what's going on in Ukraine. This is a this is becoming a problem because of Ukrainian officials and NATO NATO members, and not because of Russia's actions. So, you know, I, I think they're already prepped for that. Every time, every time there's fighting in Donbass, that gets reported. When, 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 when civilians in Donbass get killed, that gets mentioned in the Russian press, right? They mention that heavily. So, you know, I'm not sure how much they have to do. And again, you know, the, the rhetoric already has been high. It's been high for, for a while. I don't know if they need a instant PR push to make, to, 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 to justify that more. And ultimately, you know, again, at this point, Spring was an initial warning about what was going on. You know, this buildup, especially the phone call between Putin and Biden in December, was kind of a final warning. Right now, you know, it doesn't look as though there's any kind of real solution to the impasse. And so, you know, it, Russia at this point may just be waiting and trying to achieve surprise when they intervene. And it doesn't seem the negotiations at this point are really fruitful. It doesn't seem either side is really you know, willing to make concessions the other side needs. And so, you know, at this point, it, it, Russia may just be preparing the, the space to try to achieve as much surprise as possible when they decide to escalate. And that might be why we're not seeing as much rhetoric because, you know, maybe they lull people into a false security before they actually decide to escalate. I'm not sure. I know this isn't your bailiwick, but I mean, if you had the ear of President Biden and, you know, European leaders, I mean, what would you be advocating as a sort of follow on policy after an invasion or after an attack? I mean, what what could the West feasibly do for Ukraine or I mean, how could it engage Russia to try and de-escalate and solve the problem? Yeah. So when you talk about deterrence measures, sanctions are, are, are fine. Right. And they're part of it. I'm not sure how effective it will be. I think a lot of our deterrence measures should be more focused on kind of national security issues. So if Russia decides to intervene in Ukraine, it will be to solve a national security problem they have. And they basically think that there are potentially benefits to Russian national security by intervening there. Well, it makes sense for the NATO to decide, okay, how can we worsen Russia's national security situation if they decide to do this, right? Not, and, and ideally, we take steps that don't preempt Russian action. They only happen if Russia decides to intervene. We don't provide any more incentive for them to intervene. We all provide all these kind of options that say, okay, these things, we make public commitments to do so. They snap in if you escalate. If you don't escalate, they don't happen, and it's fine. So, you know, one of the things I mentioned is that, you know, Putin has mentioned, and Russian officials mentioned multiple times, the risk of long-range missiles in Ukraine. You know, the flight time to Moscow is, is quite limited, and, you know, and the threat for that. Well, Estonia is not very far from Moscow either. You know, NATO deliberately has not deployed those kind of weapons to the Baltics because they know that would be seen as escalatory, destabilizing, and provocative. A Russian you know, invasion of Ukraine would be escalatory and destabilizing for NATO as well. Right. And so that's, you know, one of the options you can say is that, and I know the Biden administration has said, they, they, you know, there would be changes to the, to the U.S. forces based in, um, in I think, the Baltic examples where NATO, if uh, Russia decides to escalate. Well, one of those could be, we, you know, with the agreement of, of Estonia or other Baltic members, the U.S. try to, say, make a public commitment to deploy uh, missile defense systems there or, you know, land-based cruise missiles that can strike Moscow. And that would be a way in which whatever security benefits you are trying to achieve in Ukraine 
Well, now we're negating that by worsening your security situation you know, in Estonia. Right. Okay, the risk of Finland joining I think, of NATO, I think, is, is a really significant one, too. Sure. I'm not sure how likely that is. But ultimately, if Finland joins, um, Russia's border with NATO expands, you know, I think multiplies by multiple times. And F- Finland has long range missiles already. So they joined right away. Right. They have the capacity to strike not only St. Petersburg, which is very close to them, but also Mormonsk, the Northern Fleet, Russia's chic, you know, capabilities with its uh, with the Russian Navy, most of the Russian Navy's most important, you know, shipbuilding factories, a lot of really important things are all pretty close to Finland. And of course, Finland purchasing F-35s, that makes that even a bigger risk. And that's the way I think there are other kind of defense commitments we can make saying, okay, here are ways in which we can make your situation worse if you do this. But again, ideally, those, those options are something that we can say, look, we're not going to do this until as long as you don't take these actions. So I think the risk of a lot of the conversation about applying more weapons to Ukraine is that they probably won't alter the, chain, the, the outcome of conflict if Russia escalates. But by sending more, right, we, we give incentive to Russia to preempt, right? We give incentive, and we might also be confirming Russia's concerns. They say, well, we're not ha- we're, we don't like NATO defense cooperation with Ukraine growing. And if we deploy more weapons to Ukraine beforehand, right, uh, you know, to what extent is the U.S. kind of confirming what, what Russia already believes is happening gives an incentive to preempt that. So that, I think that's the way to look at it. The problem is, in terms of, you know, improving Ukraine's ability to defend, a lot of the equipment they need are things they don't have and, and really can't deliver in the short term, right? And, and guys need to get trained up on, and, and they're not the best kind of best uh, situation for it. So I don't think those, all those options are as strong as people are suggesting. I don't think sending more javelin singers significantly deters the Russian escalation if they think they, about doing it, but other options could. And I think a lot of those options are, are things that would snap in if Russia escalated, but not necessarily if, uh, you know, if they didn't. Well, I mean, it's, it's question begging then. I mean, could, could not the U.S. tell Putin, listen, you put one boot across the line and we will send these uh, medium range missiles to NATO countries on your doorstep? Would that not be a, a credible form of deterrence? I mean, why wait to do it after the fact to get them to back down rather than do it before the fact to get them not to do it at all? Well, you, you can make a public commitment to do so. Right. It is an escalation. But I mean, again, I, I think a lot of things of deterrence are best to force the other side to be the initiator. So to say, look, we're not going to do these things. And again, there, there are a lot of things that NATO does not do because it would worsen Russia's security situation and they don't think it's worth it. Right now, the Baltics, uh, NATO rotates, you know, light infantry battalions, it's a very small force, not particularly threatening to Russia. And so again, it, it, NATO can come out and say, look, there are, there are informal things that NATO is not doing. Um, because it doesn't want to put Russia in a more, you know, worse situation. But those options go on the table if you escalate. And, and, and you know, even better, making a public commitment to do so, then, you know, Russia can, can, can better consider, okay, here are the, the actual things that are going to happen if we escalate, and here are things that will not happen if we don't escalate. By leaving it open to, you know, make saying, okay, we may do this, it, it becomes more of a, okay, it's a possible cost, we can't be sure it's cost, whereas you make a public commitment to do so, then it becomes, okay, it's a, a cost we, we, we're, we feel like we will have to sustain and may not be worth it. There's a, an increasing chorus in, in the American electorate, both on the left and the right, that, look, Putin is right. Uh, the way the Cold War ended, it was too triumphalist by the West. 
we should not have allowed these uh, former Soviet republic to, republics to join NATO. And also, who gives a shit about Ukraine, right? If Putin wants to invade Ukraine, let him. What is the national security or international security ramifications for America? Uh, and also, whatever we do to try to deter or counterman Russian aggression, we risk World War III. I mean, this is a country with the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. These are points that are, are gaining increasing, I, I wouldn't say credibility, but but certainly uh, an increased, increasing uh, audience. I mean, you know, you turn on Fox News, Tucker Carlson is banging on about this nightly. The anti-imperialist left thinks that the entire Ukraine crisis from Crimea to Donbass is the, the manufacturer of the U.S. State Department and NATO. I mean, what would you say? And I know we're, we're kind of getting out of your kind of lane of military expertise here. But insofar as you have that military expertise and you understand national security and international security, what does Ukraine matter to the U.S.? And what does it matter that NATO kind of gets its ducks in a row here to essentially tell Putin thus far and no farther? Um, doesn't that not play into the Kremlin's hand about, you know, this kind of um, Western hegemony at the expense of a, a kind of either Renaissance Russian empire or it's simply at the expense of the Russian Federation's own national security interests? Sure. I think Russia, Russia has legitimate complaints about things that the U.S. or NATO did. That, that affected its security posture when it was weak. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, NATO expansion, and also, you know, pulling out the, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, a number of those other kind of security moves, which, uh, you know, they weren't designed to threaten Russia. But, you know, in 2002, you know, R Russia's conventional military was quite weak. And so its real, you know, element of deterrence was cheap nuclear weapons. And so when the U.S. says, you know, we know now we're going to deploy missile defense systems, like, okay, they're not really a real risk to, to ICBMs, but, you know, that kind of stuff is destabilized in Russia and it concerns them kind of significantly. And I think a lot through when Russia was weaker, there are certainly plenty of cases when the U.S. and NATO did not take its concerns into account. And it certainly shapes the way they view things now. Now, does that justify, you know, their intervention in the Ukraine? Uh, yeah, of course not. It's hard to say all of the, the, all the effects of this. On one hand, obviously, you don't want a war with Russia. Obviously, we, we want to we want to de-escalate and try and you know, find a role for negotiations. And, but you also... You know, you, you don't want to incentivize compellence. You don't want to incentivize the threats of use of military force because once you do, you know, they may do this somewhere else. I'm not sure all the risk associated with saying, okay, we're acknowledging a sphere of influence you have and that we won't do certain things, you know, in certain countries. You know, I, I think there are, there's a lot of you know, issues with that. You know, more generally, we should care. We should care about what goes on in Europe. We should care what goes on in countries that aren't NATO members, even if the, if the U.S. is not going to deploy troops to defend those countries, you know, it should matter. And this isn't something we should we should try to uh, accept. And you know, ultimately, Ukraine is a de democracy. It's it is a flawed democracy. It has uh, obviously issues, but you know, it, it's it's moving. I think in the right direction in those regards. And ultimately, is, is my personal opinion. But I ultimately think democracies are important. I think you know, in general, we should be supportive of democracies and and, and do that. As, you know, pretty much anywhere in the world. So letting a democracy get forced to kind of give up sovereignty or, you know, forcing them to forcing them to neutrality is not something that's, you know, should be something that we, we is a positive development and that we should sit back and, and allow. Of course, same time, it doesn't mean, you know, there are limitations of what we can and can't do in Ukraine. I, when we talk with Russia, I don't think it's a, it's a problem for NATO, the U.S. to, to, to even make a little commitment saying, look, we, we're not going to deploy long-range missiles in Ukraine. Like we, we always have to be destabilizing. We, we can make a commitment to, do, to not do so or a commitment to, to not deploy significant missile defense systems like Patriots and so on. Those are things that, you know, are, are not 
crazy things to do because what what goes on in Ukraine does affect Russia. Mm-hmm. But you know, vice versa, Russia doesn't shouldn't get a complete say on everything that goes on in Ukraine, and they shouldn't get a complete say on, on their sovereignty issue as well. And I think I think there's a balance that has to be struck there. Okay, Rob. I mean, that's you've given us a pretty comprehensive picture, both uh, geopolitically and uh, militarily, which is kind of what I wanted out of you. <laughs> so, um, listen, man, I, I appreciate it, uh, and I'm sure my listeners do too. And if your hypothesis proves correct, um, we should have you back on to talk about what the Russian attack on Ukraine looks like and how well it is going. Um, and it doesn't seem like that's going to be too far uh, away from the, the present, given the um, the sort of forecast timeline on, on events. Hopefully I come on and, and tell you about why I was wrong. That's that's what I'm. Why you were wrong. Right. You can do a long Twitter thread here. Here's what I. Exactly. Fucked up. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, uh, I, I again, uh, thank you for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule for this. And uh, uh, just to remind my audience, uh, we've been talking to Robert Lee. He is a Ph.D. candidate at University College London, I'm sorry, King's College London, Department of War Studies, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. His most recent paper is Moscow's Compelling Strategy, which you can read at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and you can follow him. Tell me your Twitter handle again, Rob. It's R-A-Lee85. R-A-Lee85. Okay, great. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. We'll see you next time.